I'd like to turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. I'll start reading from the end of chapter 4, verse 25 of chapter 4, Romans 4, 25. Speaking about Jesus, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. (coughs) Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Remember back to when we started to look at chapter 5, we looked at that first word in the chapter, therefore, and we saw that whatever truth the Bible teaches always has implications. We should, at the end of every message, and I'd encourage you to do it this morning when I finish preaching, to ask the question, so what? So what? Now that can be said in a very dismissive way, so what? Or, well, what, what do we do then? What are the implications of this? Paul is always concerned to set out truth and then say, well, so what? Therefore, this, this, and this. So he's drawing implications. Truth always leads to change in our lives. And he's said we've been justified through faith. Therefore, first of all, we've got peace with God. The barriers are down. No longer any difficulty in our relationship with God. He is reconciled to us, we're reconciled with him, peace with God, and we've gained access by faith into the grace we now stand in. And we're looking at that last time. Now I want us to move on to the end of verse 2, where it says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice is a bit of a kind of Sounds kind of religious, doesn't it? Rejoice. It's a difficult word actually to translate because uh, I think most modern translations use the word rejoice, but the the word that's being translated there actually has the idea of boasting about something, glorying in something. So it could be we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Oh, we glory in it. Yes, if there's something that we, we value so much in our lives that we can't stop talking about it, then we're kind of boasting about it. We glory in something. And what Paul says here is, since we've been justified through faith, we can't keep quiet. We, we glory in this. We will talk about it. We, we rejoice in it. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And he speaks here about these things that we boast in. The fact the word appears three times in a few verses. It says we, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our sufferings, verse 3. And then verse 11, we boast in God. We boast in the hope of glory. We boast in our sufferings. We boast about God. This is something that Paul says. This is, a, this is an implication. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith... We boast in these things. And particularly here, he says, we boast in the hope 
of the glory of God. Hope is one of the distinctive words of the New Testament, but again, a difficult word to translate. It's perfectly valid translation, but in normal speech, the word hope has a much weaker meaning than this. When you think of the things you hope for, you're thinking of things that you long for, things that are possibilities, things that maybe you'd even say is a definite maybe. It could happen. I hope it will. The last few weeks, Mary and I have been watching MasterChef. I don't know if any of you watch that. Uh, And uh, they've got all these people who want to be the master chef. And they're interviewed one by one, and they all say, I could win this. I could win this. In fact, they say, I'm sure I will win it. I will be in the final. And then you see them eliminated, and the camera follows them as they walk down the road, shoulders down, head down, their hopes dashed. A hope is, it's an ambition. It could happen. I hope it will happen, but it might not. When the word is used here, it's not used in that sense at all. It's not talking about a definite maybe. It's not talking about a possibility that I'd love to see happen. (coughs) It's talking about a future certainty. It's talking about something that will definitely happen. And that's our hope. It's not we're just longing for it to happen, but it might not. No, this is something that will happen. It's a definite, absolute certainty. It's in the future, and so we look towards it. It's our hope. It's a very strong word. It's Generally speaking, people don't know much about this in terms of, oh, we we can long for things, we can hope that things happen, but this definite certainty is a very distinctive Christian concept. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, the writer there says in verse 19, Hebrews 6 and verse 19, he speaks about things that are unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. There it is. It's certain. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, this is something that Christians have, and actually no one else has. This is a distinctive of being a Christian. Of all people, a Christian, a person who has been justified through faith, knowing that Jesus was delivered to death for our sins, raised to life for our justification, we have hope. A absolute future certainty. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul says, uses this description of all of us before we met with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, he says, at that time you were separate from Christ, and he says you were without hope and without God in the world. There it is, without hope without God. The two go together. If you don't know God, you don't know any hope. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, speaking about being bereaved, people who have died, he says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep 
or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. That's the rest of men. There is no hope because the only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the general situation of everyone who doesn't know Christ, our position before we met him was one of hopelessness. Well, this is current in the world, isn't it? Kind of apathy. Why bother? What's the point? What's in it for me? One of the big dangers with this upcoming general election, one of the difficulties of predicting the outcome is how many people will actually bother to vote? What's the point? Apathy kind of reigns. And it's hard to see what, what is the point in anything. This last week, not wishing to be political, uh, but nonetheless this last week, David Cameron announced his great scheme for mobilizing the entire population in doing good works around in the community. And they interviewed someone who was involved in such a volunteer operation who said, but it's hard to get anyone to volunteer. Because the thing is, what's the point? Why bother? What's in it for me? Hopelessness. Where, where's it all leading? Where's it going? What's it all about? Well, why bother? In the Old Testament, there's just such a thing expressed in Ecclesiastes. A very wealthy man had everything that money could buy, everything that power could give. And he expresses it in this way in Ecclesiastes 1. Verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets. What's the point? Nothing changes. We're here for a while, then we've gone. We accumulate a lot of stuff, we leave it behind. What's the point? Hopelessness. For most people... I don't want to get you depressed, but for most people, outside of Christ, the reality is, what does the future hold? Well, ultimately, death. And the reality then is, beyond death, judgment, and beyond judgment, punishment. So, for most people then, rather than face the reality, they have a hope. But it's a maybe sort of hope. Extinction nothing after death. Or maybe, maybe there is some kind of benevolent afterlife. And people express this, don't they? They hear people say, I know my mother is looking down watching me. Well, how do you know that? You know, it's, it's just kind of the sentimental ideas, but basic hopelessness in the, in the biblical sense. No certainty. But what Paul is saying here is we rejoice in hope. We have a certain hope. And the grounds of that hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered over to death for our sins. We have all sinned. Paul has spelt that out in the preceding chapters. We have all fallen short of the standard that God wants us to live to. We have all sinned. And Jesus took our sin, was delivered over to death for our sins, punishing punished as we deserve to be, and then raised to life for our justification. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see that his sacrifice has been accepted by God. He took our sin, it's punished in him. How do we know that the deal was done? Well, Jesus rose again. And at that point, 
the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, Jesus alive, we know our sin has been punished totally for all time, justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified through faith, we, we know we've got a hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's a connection between the resurrection of Jesus, our justification, and our hope. If there were no resurrection, if Jesus had not been raised, if this was just a story, if this had just been created by the disciples, then actually we haven't got a hope. The only thing we can look forward to with certainty is that we will die. But beyond that, we have no hope. Those, uh, Paul said in 1, 1 Thessalonians, we looked at, we're not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. But we believe, he said, that Jesus died and rose again. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have a hope. Paul expresses it. He goes into it in some detail, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about this, the, how essential it is for us that Jesus was raised. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. We're worshipping a dead Savior. That's futile. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, he says, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Why? Well, because it can be tough being a Christian. You can face opposition. Paul knew about that. A lot of persecution, a lot of suffering. And if, if that's all, if this life is all there is, he says, of all people, where do we pit it? But, he says, we've got a hope. Jesus was raised. And because Jesus was raised, we know our sin is dealt with. Death, which appeared to win when Jesus expired on the cross, Death defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So sin dealt with, death defeated, we've got a hope. Why? Because we're in Christ. So justified. Death holds no sting for us. We've been singing about that. The scripture says it. The sting of death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is our sin. When we die, we face judgment. But if our sin is dealt with, then there is nothing to fear. Yes, the circumstances of our death may be painful, may be unpleasant, but beyond it, there's hope. There is nothing to fear beyond because we are justified through faith. We have peace with God and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're justified. Jesus is risen. He's ascended. And we know that we will be with him. He gave that promise, didn't he? It's in John chapter 14 when he was alerting his disciples to the fact he wasn't going to be with them in bodily form forever. He was going to die and he was going to go back to his father. But he says in John 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus, risen, 
bursting through death, ascended, and he's there preparing a place for us so that where he is, we will be also. And so we have a hope. In all the troubles of life, and there will be troubles, Paul goes on to say, and we rejoice in our sufferings. Troubles will come, but troubles don't shake this absolute certainty. We've got a hope that lies beyond all that this life might dish up for us, all the things that could go wrong, all the things that can come our way. We've got a hope beyond it. That's what Paul is saying. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, it's not just hope. He tells us the content of that hope. And we need to understand what it is. The content of the hope is the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? He's already hinted or referred to it back in chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a a kind of a standard, the glory of God, and we're missing it. All of humanity missing it. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Here he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? Well, it's something that we will see, and it's something that we will share. First of all, it's something that we will see. The very first person to die because they believed in Jesus, Stephen, we read about him in Acts chapter 7, he saw this. In chapter Acts 7, verse 55, he's being stoned to death. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, we rejoice rejoicing our hope of the glory of God and we rejoice in our sufferings. There is Stephen suffering, suffering horrifically. They're lobbing rocks at him to kill him. But as he is suffering, he sees his hope. He said, I see heaven open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's described as he saw the glory of God. What he saw enabled him to go through that suffering. His eyes are on something else. He's got a hope and he can see it. It's the glory of God. Again, we have to say, what does that mean? Well, it wasn't only Stephen who saw it. We will see it. In John chapter 17, just before Jesus was taken and crucified, he prayed. And the substance of his prayer is recorded in John 17. And he prays this thing. He says in verse 24, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is aware. He's got this circle of friends. They've been with him through thick and thin, three years. They've only seen Jesus of Nazareth. While they're living with Jesus of Nazareth, they're observing him, they're listening to him, they're trying to suss out, who is he? He 
He's an ordinary man, and yet he does amazing things, and he says amazing things. Who is he? They just see a man. They've heard about his family. They know he'd been a carpenter. They know all of that. But that's all they see. Three of them had a bit of a glimpse when Jesus took them up a mountain once, and when they get to the top of the mountain, suddenly Jesus changed before their eyes. He's suddenly glorious. The three disciples didn't know what to make of it, and then it's gone, and Jesus is himself again. A momentary glimpse of something. But now Jesus says, Father, I want those you've given me. That's all of us. If we believe in Jesus, that's all of us. I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. The three disciples on the mountaintop got a glimpse, and then it had gone. And Jesus' longing and prayer for us, and his prayer is going to be answered, is we will see what he's really like. Not just Jesus of Nazareth, the man, a man who could be tired, a man who could get exasperated sometimes, just a man, but to see his glory, the glory he had before the creation of the world. We will see it. Stephen sees heaven open and he sees the glory of God. We also will see the glory of God. John, who wrote that gospel, was also in vision going to see that. He writes about it in the book called Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Ginny was recounting a dream earlier. John has a dream. He, he, he hears someone speaking. He turns around to look. And he, sees, he says, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forever and ever. This is Jesus, risen, glorified, and John sees him in a vision. We will see him face to face. We will be with him. That's the prayer of Jesus, that those the Father has given to him should be where he is and see his glory. And we will be there. We will see what that means. We can only hear the word glory. We think, what does it mean? John tries to express it like the sun in its brilliance. You, know, you can't look at the sun. It will burn your eyeballs. And that's the face of Jesus. And then all of those, it was like this. It was like that. He can't really describe it. It has to say things that he can say it was like. But we will see that glory. We will see it. But more than that, we will share it. We won't simply be spectators like John falling down as one dead, unable to look at this magnificent sight. We are going to share that eventually. Paul tells us about it later on in his letter to the Romans in verse 17 of chapter 8. He says, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God. 
co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We We won't just observe him glorified. We are going to be changed and we in some way are going to come into that to share in that glory. So, then he goes on to say in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see why he says back in chapter 5 about this hope that causes us to even glory, boast in our sufferings. He says our present sufferings aren't worth comparing. They kind of fall away when you see what's going to be revealed in us. Stephen suffering that cruel death. It's like the stones almost kind of bounce off his spirit because he's seen something. The glory of God just draws him and what's death? There's something beyond that is seen. And here Paul is saying, we will not only see it, we will share it. So Paul gives a summary of the Christian gospel in verse 30 of Romans 8. Those God predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal. It's yet to happen, but in the purposes of God, it's done. If you have been called by God to belong to him, it's because he predestined you to belong to him. He always wanted you. It was no accident. God predestined that you should be his. He called you. He justified you in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. Our sin dealt with, the slate wiped clean. Nothing to fear when we face God. And he also has issued the decree glorified. We're yet to come into it, but God has said it. It is a fact. We will see this glory, but miraculously, we will also share it. I don't know when, I don't know what it's going to be like. Obviously, I can only see what it says here, but I wonder if we will look around when we get to heaven, if I'll spot some of you in the crowd. And what are you going to look like? Imagine a glorified Dan. I can't imagine it. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine what it's going to be like. Us, and yet glorified. Just as Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop. It's recognizably Jesus, but wow! God intended us to be more than we currently are. God planned more for us than we've ever yet known. And the day will come when we fully come into that. Our inheritance. We don't deserve it. We deserve something totally other. We deserve to be punished for our rebellion against God, our stupidity and not recognizing who he is, all of that stuff. But all of our guilt put on Jesus. He takes it. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, what you will. And he drains the cup. He dies in our place, suffering for us, our sin dealt with, Jesus alive. Death is no longer our enemy. And we know ahead there is glory. Now Paul says, we don't just know that. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Or we 
boast in this. We glory in it. We bounce up and down with this. This thrills us. This motivates us. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt in something that is an absolute certainty, a future certainty. It is our hope. Jesus has punched a hole through death. Death is no longer the end of the road. There's a hole being punched through, and through that hole we see glory. Can you remember when you first learned to draw? You know, sometimes little children will draw me a picture, and I don't know why they tend to draw me a double-decker bus. And So it's, you, you have the side of the bus, and then over there's the front, but it's sticking out. It's like the bus has been kind of opened out. So you've got the roof, the back, the front, but it's all in one sort of dimension. When you then learn some things, you learn about perspective. And in order to get something in perspective, you need a focal point, and then you draw lines around. You know what I mean. And two focal points, you get it. the the full effect. Through life, our focal point that gives us our perspective is the fact we're going to die. When you get to my age, people start saying, when are you going to retire? People start talking about pensions. And then when you look at this whole thing about a pension, you realize If you're a heavy smoker, you can get a better pension than if you're healthy. Because if you're a heavy smoker, you'll die sooner and they won't have to give you so much. And you go, oh, I don't want to think about all of this. But no, that's the certainty. You're going to die. And when you're younger, of course, you, you, you don't really like to think about it. And yet you do know you're not here forever. And so you think of your career and you think of how long you're going to work if you've got a job and when you're going to retire and uh, have you got enough for a little bungalow by the sea? Or, you know, you think about, maybe you don't think about all these things, but life has got a focal point. And all of our decisions, whether we like to think about it or not, we're, our, our perspective comes from the fact we're going to die. We're not going to be here forever. And I've known people who, as soon as they hit the age of 50, start kind of slowing down and getting rid of possessions to make it easier for the people who have to sort things out when they're gone. You think, how morbid. You maybe have reached the ripe old age of 40, halfway through now. Not long left. And that's the focal point. where We know that, that's, that's where it's at. And we, 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 we pace our life towards that. Jesus has punched a hole through that. So when we got our perspective from death, we've got to change the whole thing now. That, that focal point has been moved. Now, there's the hope of the glory of God. We've now got a totally different perspective on life. Everything has changed. We're not heading for death. We're heading for glory. Now, how does that change your perspective? Well, it changes everything. There are some therefores that come out of this. There are some so what's. We glory, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that then, we we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know where it's heading. We know what's beyond. We've seen past death. We've seen Jesus went through that. He ascended. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, you're going to be. And Father, I long for them to see my glory. And we will. That changes your perspective changes your value system. 
changes your plans because it's a different focal point now from which we get our perspective. So we, we rejoice. We, and not only that, we will endure. So we rejoice in our sufferings, not enjoying suffering, but suffering doesn't change our boasting. We know that no one can take away from us what God has provided for us. We know that, indeed, if they take our life, we're going to see him sooner. It changes our perspective. It's not all about self-preservation now. It's not about comfort. It's not about, we've got to look after yourself. No, I'm going to see him. I'm going to be with him. That's what I'm heading for. And so suffering, well, the world will go through convulsions. The Bible tells us that God will shake everything that can be shaken. It's in Hebrews 12. God will shake everything that can be shaken so that what can't be shaken will remain. What can't be shaken? Our hope. That can't be shaken. Yeah, they can shake everything else. The world can go through labor pains, as Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, and it will. And we'll see financial systems collapse. We will see natural calamities. All of these things will happen. And are happening. But does that shake our hope? No, our hope was never in our pension. Our hope was never in our savings. Our hope was never in anything material. We've got a hope that's beyond all of that. Everything else fades in comparison. We've got a hope in a Savior who died, rose again, is in heaven, and is waiting there for us. And we will be with him. And so, our treasure isn't here. We boast in what's ahead. We, we boast in our sufferings. Why? Because we know something. We've got a hope. More than that, we have something to show people. This is, I said, hope is a distinctive of being a Christian. This is our testimony. This is our witness. In a hopeless world, People with a bright hope shine out. Where people have lost hope, where people are saying, what's the point? We say, we've got a point. We've got a hope. There is something that shines out from people with a hope. And increasingly, as hopelessness inevitably will spread around as people see things they've trusted in forever just collapsing, we're people with a hope. We're not phased by these things. We're not shaken when other people are shaken because we're looking, as it were, to the hole that Jesus has punched through death. And as we look at that, it's like we're in a dark world, but there's light shining through the hole and it shines on our faces. There's a brightness about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because we have a hope, because we are rejoicing in something. We rejoice. Paul states it here as a fact. Therefore, it's an implication, since we've been justified through faith, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now you might say, yeah, but we don't. We should, but we don't. We're preoccupied with other things. We're as preoccupied with other things as other people are. We talk about this great distinction, but where is it? Well, at the end of this section, in verse 5, Paul says, Hope doesn't disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now, Paul isn't going to speak about the work of the Spirit until chapter 8, but he just gives that reference here because our hope and the activity of the Spirit, the two go together. The Holy Spirit brings us, as it were, a down payment on our future. The Holy Spirit brings our future into our present, into now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's, it's a complex chapter, and I, I don't propose to get into it in detail, but just to draw your attention to something. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul is referring back to the story of Moses. He's referring to when Moses came down from the mountain having met with God and Moses' face was shining. It says in verse 7, the Israelites couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So here's the activity of the Spirit and amongst us and glory. And he goes on to say in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our hope, we rejoice, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I've said it's a future certainty. And Paul is saying, yeah, that is absolutely true. Paul agrees with me. <laughs> it's absolutely true, but it's not just future. It's not just future. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. How is that? Well, through the activity of the Spirit. He brings from the future into our present. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, as we're filled with the Spirit, as the Spirit touches our hearts and reveals things to us, then we've got a hope. Jenny was talking about she's excited about what's coming. She's glorying in a future certainty, but she's a sense it's, it's coming near. The Holy Spirit brings glorious things from the future to now. Much of it is still future. Much of it we wait for. But hey, it's not all future. When the church of the Lord Jesus Christ meets together, people should get a glimpse of heaven. That only happens when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is full of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is working in us, taking the future, bringing it into our present. If you're using the version that I'm using, the New International Version, you'll see that there's a little letter um, against the word we, where it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the footnote says, or let us, or let us rejoice, and so on. And scholars are divided about this, how this, these verses should be translated. And most versions follow this same pattern of saying, we have peace with God, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our sufferings. Others say, 
Now, actually, what Paul wrote was, let us rejoice. Well, no one knows. But it's still legitimate to say, let us rejoice. This is the reality. Jesus died, risen, ascended in glory, preparing a place for us, pouring out His Holy Spirit so that the light of the future shines in our faces and we're lightened and there's rejoicing and there's glorying. And it's not all intellectual. It's not only, oh, I must take some notes so I can remember that. But no, it changes our life. There's something that motivates us, something that kind of puts springs in our socks. We can't stop bouncing this. We glory in this. We've got a hope. It's not just memorizing Bible verses. No, the truth of those Bible verses is right in our hearts. We glory in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt in it. We boast in it. Because we've been justified through faith. Because Jesus was raised to life. God wants us to be like that. And God wants the light of the future to shine on our lives so that we're changed. Jesus momentarily transfigured on the mountaintop. The Holy Spirit permanently with us. So we're transformed. Change from one degree of glory to another. Is it happening? Well, it could be saying here, well, let's do it. Let's be like that. Let's get hold of it. Let's allow God to work that in us. Let's change from being like everyone else to saying, no, I know where I'm going. And where I'm going is already affecting my life now. It doesn't matter to me about savings, bank accounts, mortgages. And, you know, these things are around, but no, I've, I've, got, I've got a hope. I'm looking forward to something, and it's affecting my life now. Let's pray.